we are a week into October, right? Uh, this past week, the neighbors across the street from us put up cobwebs all in their front uh, yard and an entryway. Uh, about a block down from us, there's a couple of skeletons sitting on a front porch bench together looking out over our street. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just that time of year. Every day I see more and more decorations going up. Tis the season for spooky things and scary stories, right? Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 5. Uh, so if you have your Bible, you can open up there to Daniel chapter 5. And, and as I read Daniel 5 this week, I couldn't help but imagine it as a kind of spooky story. You know, kind of like a, a, a scary ghost story that might be told around a campfire late at night. Um, so we'll, we'll read the text in a minute, but before we get there, let me, let me tell you what I mean. Here's perhaps how the story might go. It was a dark, dark night. The perfect night for throwing an all-out bash, a big party, or so Billy thought. Billy's parents were away, leaving him alone in their old creaky house. So, with a mischievous grin, he decided to throw a party to end all parties. Little did he know how true that would be. So Billy invited all of his friends, and they arrived in droves. The grand living room was filled with flickering candles, creating an eerie ambiance. But what truly set the stage for this event was the fine china that Billy had taken from his parents' special cabinet. It was delicate and ornate, a stark contrast to the spooky atmosphere that they were in. As the night wore on, the party-goers danced, they laughed, they indulged in the, the decadent treats and, and drinks that Billy had prepared. The mansion echoed with sounds of merriment, but little did they know, something lurked in the shadows. Amidst the revelry, Billy noticed a faint, chilling breeze that sent shivers down his spine. He brushed it off as the old house's drafty nature until something finally happened that would cause all the carousing to come to a halt. A sudden gust of wind blew and all the candles were extinguished, plunging the party into darkness. All dark except for one single flickering flame by whose light they saw the shape of a disembodied hand appear. And it began writing a mysterious message on the wall. No one could tell what this writing said, but everyone knew it could not be good. Billy's face turned pale. His legs became weak. 
his whole body began to shake. Playtime was over, but much more than the party would come to an end that night. Ooh, right? There you go. That's the spooky story, right? This is essentially the story we find in Daniel chapter 5. I can imagine it being told around Israelite campfires many years after it happened. But instead of a creaky mansion, we have the kingdom of Babylon. Instead of a boy named Billy, we have a king named Belshazzar who throws a party that truly does end all parties, as we will see. So let's read the story together. And as we have other weeks, I would love some help reading the chapter. Can I get a couple of volunteers to help read with me? Linda, and can I get one more? Anyone? Andrea. All right, you guys are far apart, so can you come forward and we can share the mic together? Up here? Okay. All right, we can read off the screen from Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, near the lampshade in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means, will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Behajar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, 
and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to be put to death, he put to death. And those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over, and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written, Mene Mene Tekel Parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylons, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Thank you for your help in reading. As we continue... Let us pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word and for this story that continues to remind us that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. 
God, I pray that as we consider the words of your Scripture together this morning, that you might sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there is your spooky ghost story from Daniel chapter 5, complete with floating disembodied hands and a shaking, knobbly-kneed King Belshazzar, right? This is the story that we read today. The story begins with Belshazzar, who is described as a king and as a son of Nebuchadnezzar. But each of these details needs a little further explanation. According to Babylonian history, Belshazzar is not a direct son of Nebuchadnezzar, but rather comes a few generations later. Uh, Quite a bit of time has passed between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. And during that time, uh, several things have happened. Nebuchadnezzar has passed away leaving the kingdom to his son, someone named M.L. Marduk, who was assassinated by his brother-in-law named Nereglisser, who soon died and was succeeded by his son, Labashi Marduk, who only ruled for a couple of years until a coup formed against him by someone named Nabonidus. You guys following? You got it? right? Uh, It was a true Game of Thrones kind of sequence, right? It was just death and rebellion and one king after another, coups and deceptions. But ultimately, a guy named Nabonidus has become king. And yet, during Nabonidus's reign, he kind of just goes missing, Uh, He becomes absentee. And so it is his son, Belshazzar, who rules in his place. Uh, This we know from from Babylonian history uh, that that we hear written about in Daniel chapter 5. So Belshazzar is not literally the son of Nebuchadnezzar, but rather figuratively a son of or successor to Nebuchadnezzar's throne. And also, he's technically not king, but rather he's left to rule, to act as king, while his father is MIA. Truly, Belshazzar is like little Billy throwing a rager party while the parents are gone, right? That's what we have here in Daniel chapter 5. And the party he throws really is a rager. The text describes it as a great banquet for a thousand nobles. There's wine, there's wives, there's concubines. A grand occasion calls for a grandiose touch. And so he breaks into his parents' china cabinet, the temple, and pulls out Uh, some important things. It says Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So these items that were made for the worship of the one true God and king are now being used as dinnerware at the drunken party of a Babylonian king. And they're raised to toast the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This is when the hand 
appears, right? And notice how actually spooky the story is. In Daniel, verse 5, it says, Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace, right? You have this flickering lamplight. Fingers of a hand show up. Mysterious, cryptic writing on the wall. It's creepy. Uh, And then it continues. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. He was so frightened his legs became weak and his knees were knocking together, right? It's a scary scene. He's terrified. It's a classic ghost story if I ever heard one. So here's what has happened. Back in Daniel chapter 1, we can recall that Nebuchadnezzar has attacked Jerusalem, captured items from the temple of their God, and captured people from the city. And then for the next few chapters, we see Nebuchadnezzar being taught about that God by those people who he had captured, namely Daniel and his friends. And as we've seen, by the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar had learned to honor this God and to respect those people, right? He calls Daniel as the wisest of all of his, his people, But a few generations have passed since then. Though the life and the the stories of the great Nebuchadnezzar was still known, the lessons that he had learned had been forgotten. And the ones who taught those lessons, Daniel and his friends, have mostly been pushed to the margins. By now, Daniel would have been an old man, probably in his 80s. If Belshazzar knows about him, he certainly doesn't think of him when this happens. And so the hand is written. All the king's wise men couldn't put Humpty back together again, right? I mean, they just can't figure it out. But then enters the queen. Or, as many scholars understand, because of the authority with which she speaks, the queen mother, which is a title for the wife of a former king. Some may say this could have even been Nebuchadnezzar's wife, continuing to live uh, after his death. Uh, Doesn't say, we don't know, but whatever the case is, this queen comes in speaking with authority. She's very much likely an older and wiser person who remembers the stories of Nebuchadnezzar, remembers Daniel and his friends and their wisdom. And so she enters the scene and she speaks to Belshazzar and reminds him of all of this and says, call on Daniel he'll be able to help you. And so Belshazzar does. He calls on Daniel, and Daniel arrives. Belshazzar describes the situation to him, offers him a great prize if he can solve the mystery. And then in verse 17, Daniel responds, you can keep your gifts for yourself. Give your reward to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. And of course, everyone's on the edge of their seat. What does this mysterious writing say? What does it mean? 
but they're going to have to wait a little bit. Because for the next several verses, instead of giving them an interpretation of this text, Daniel gives them a history lesson. He retells the story of Nebuchadnezzar's power and his pride and how he was humbled when he was sent into the wilderness like an animal, where he learned to acknowledge at the end of verse 21 that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. So these stories are recounted to Belshazzar, and they are stories that Belshazzar probably would have heard before and known them, but clearly he has not learned from them. And Daniel makes this clear as he continues in verse 22, saying, you, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, even though you knew all of this. You have not humbled yourself even though you knew all of this. This is really the crux of Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5 is ultimately not a story about cryptic writing from a creepy hand. It's about remembering the past and learning from it. Remembering the past and learning from it. Daniel chapter 4, if you remember, is bookended by these uh, proclamations of praise from Nebuchadnezzar to God, saying his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. That's the bookend of Daniel 4. And Daniel 5 comes right after to show us that This is true. Generations later, another person, Belshazzar, is ruling in Babylon, but God's kingdom still endures. God's kingdom truly is from generation to generation, an everlasting kingdom. This was true in ancient Babylon, But hear this, thousands of years and dozens of generations later, this is still true for us today. God's kingdom is an eternal kingdom. It endures from generation to generation. We've all received this, and we're all called to pass it on as well. And yet, we have often had the same forgetfulness as Belshazzar. In verse 23, Daniel says to him, You've set up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. You and your nobles, your wives, your concubines drank from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. We do these things too when we forget. 
We too set ourselves up against God whenever we pursue power and selfish ambition. You may think, you know, well, we we don't have to worry about misusing sacred temple items, right? Uh, That's not something to worry about. And yet for us, it's actually often far more serious. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And yet often, just like Belshazzar misused the items from the temple, we have misused and abused our bodies. Created to be sacred and holy in the image of God and yet often misused perhaps in the same way that uh, Belshazzar did at drunken parties or misused through laziness and gluttony or misused through violent acts that we continue to hear about, whether it's war in Ukraine or Israel or crime in nearby city streets. We continue to misuse the things that God has called holy, our very own selves, and one another. And again, we might think, well, we're not, you know, lifting a glass to the gods of silver and gold and wood and stone. And yet, just look around, right? Our culture evaluates one another by big bank accounts. By bright bling, by the grand wood and stone of big houses. We worship these material gods every time we go to Amazon to soothe our anxiety, right? Every time that we dream of the next big upgrade that we might make. And yet these things do not hear or understand or see. We worship them. We look to them for fulfillment, but they are not alive and they are not God. And then finally he says to Belshazzar, we do not honor the God who holds our lives and ways in his hand. Just imagine how would we live differently if we truly believed that God is holding us in his hand? That God is holding us in his hand. We wouldn't need to puff ourselves up. We wouldn't need to find false security and possessions. We wouldn't need to take advantage of one another if we really trusted in God. We really trusted that he is holding us then we could be truly free of all these things. We could truly be at ease in the world instead of constantly anxious or afraid. We could truly be at rest, trusting in our good Father. If we truly believed that we were in God's hands, we might just be able to open our hands to live in his love, and to bless those around us. Most of us, like Belshazzar, know the stories. We know about God. We've learned about his everlasting kingdom. We've heard this before. 
but we often fail to live it. To really trust this. To really trust Him. It's not that we don't know. It's that we easily forget. And so we need constant reminders of God and God's kingdom. And for Belshazzar, that reminder came in the form of a floating, disembodied hand to interrupt his big party, writing a cryptic, mysterious message on the wall. Four words appeared on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. All words having to do with money, with things, with wealth. We might paraphrase it, money, money, nickel, penny, right? Uh, That's more or less what they would have heard or seen at that. But these words can be nouns referring to cash, but they could also be understood as verbs, which is how Daniel interprets them. Mene, tekel, paris, numbered, weighed, divided. Numbered, weighed, and divided. And so Daniel tells Belshazzar, your days have been numbered. You have been weighed and found wanting. So your kingdom will be divided. The hand appeared to write out once more the main message of the book of Daniel. This kingdom will come to an end. But God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That's the message that the hand writes. This kingdom of yours, Belshazzar, will come to an end. But God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And it would happen that very night that Belshazzar was killed and Babylon came to an end. The whole kingdom and empire of Babylon in one night comes to an end. Historically, this is true. It was invaded and overtaken. But I want to think about this. Sometime later, after Babylon was overtaken by Persia, after Persia was overtaken by Rome, this very same message comes to be proclaimed in another way. This time, God's word becomes flesh, not merely as a hand, but as a whole person. Becomes flesh and dwells among us. Born as a baby, matured as a man, Jesus comes announcing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come near. And as he proclaims this, he often does use his hands to communicate this message. I think of the time when religious leaders brought a woman caught in the act of adultery before Jesus and asked him to judge her. And what does he do? He bent down 
using his finger to write in the sand. And he says to the crowd, let any of you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. He speaks these same words to us today. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. When we're tempted to judge, his own writing in the sand speaks. And after the crowd begins to dissipate and go away, he looks to the woman and he asks her, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And so he says to her, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He speaks these very same words to us today. When we are filled with doubt and condemnation, with fear of judgment, he speaks these words of grace. His own handwriting continues to speak. I think of another time. It was the middle of another feast, not like Belshazzar's, when Jesus, the Word made flesh, knelt down and used his hands not to write this time, but to wash his disciples' feet. Peter was shocked, maybe like Belshazzar was as well, but Jesus insisted. I will wash your feet. And after washing all of their feet, Jesus says to them, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. His hands speak the same message to us today, calling us to love and serve one another. I think of another story. The day after this one. This time Jesus' hands were not writing or washing. Instead, they were nailed to a cross. Hanging there as a sign that the kingdom of sin and death would finally come to its end. And so he cried, It is finished. And he reminds us of this same truth today. His nail-pierced hands remind us that sin and death no longer hold power over us because God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. I think of one more time. After Jesus' death, some of his disciples were together and some of them had seen him. They'd seen him risen from the dead. And they were telling each other about it. But one of them had not seen it. Thomas said to the rest of them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And so Jesus appeared among them and he speaks to them, peace be with you. And he looks to Thomas holding out his hand toward him, 
saying, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then Jesus goes on to say, you have seen me and you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus holds his hands out to us today, continuing to call us to trust him. His hand is still writing on the wall as he continues to call us to his kingdom.